Lesson 9. Your Emotions Man is superior to animals in proportion as his mind is superior to theirs, and to the extent that his intellect, not his emotions, rules his actions. One man is superior to another and achieves results superior to the others in exact proportion as his mind is in better working order, more under his control, and better understood by him. If I bring my own sufferings and successes, why have I not been taught this before? Others will ask. There is but one answer. We are never taught the things most vital to human happiness. Fathers and mothers are so busy getting food for their children's stomachs and clothes for their backs, they have no time or energy to investigate or explain either to themselves or to their children how the human mind controls human happiness. The result is that parents who would not think of feeding their children's intestines canned food feed their intellects with canned ideas, ideas so outworn, so stale and putrid that the child is forever handicapped in the race of life. Teachers and preachers, the other two forces which train the young mind, are so harassed by the overwhelming problem of making small salaries suffice for necessities that they have neither heart nor head for remoter human ones. Thus, we grow up knowing a lot of things that ain't so. Things that are easy to teach, pretty to preach, but impossible to live up to. We are told that virtue is its own reward and see the most virtuous people all around us rewarded with kicks and poverty. We are told that genius is the art of taking infinite pains, only to discover that the most painstaking people are in bookkeeping cages getting $20 a week, while every genius is notoriously incapable of taking pains with anything save what he loves, even his shoelaces. We are taught that success comes from hard work, but note how the day laborer gets $4 for working his hands eight hours, while the banker makes a fortune by working his head four hours a day and playing golf the rest of the time. The secret of success is not hard work, painstaking effort, nor even virtue, though each of these is essential to supreme happiness. The secret of success for every human being lies in the harmonious working of his conscious and subconscious powers. Those who have succeeded have, in every instance, consciously or unconsciously, used their minds as they were intended to be used. Those who failed unconsciously violated the laws of the mind and reaped the inevitable result. This submerged nine-tenths of the consciousness is of the utmost significance in every human life. It has unlimited capacity for good or evil, according as it is used or misused. Each individual's life is made or marred by this vast subterranean sea of urges and impulses. This great self is infinitely strong, infinitely courageous, infinitely powerful. It exists for one purpose and one only, to externalize you, to bring you self-expression, to secure for you an untrammeled personality, to attain for you your supreme subconscious aim. From birth to death, it strives to set you free, to enable you to be yourself, your truest, realist self. The greatest psychological discovery of recent ages shows us that the entire personality of every human being 
is built around some one deep consuming desire, some supreme unconscious wish. In one individual, this supreme desire is for one thing. In another, for something else, depending on the type and temperament of each. But no human being lives who does not have some deep desire at the core of his heart. That every man builds his life around this supreme wish is the explanation of many of our otherwise incredible inconsistencies, strange reactions, and of the remarkable accomplishments of apparently mediocre men and women. Many persons know what their supreme life wish is. The most successful always know, and their success is due more to this knowledge than to any other one thing. When we say, that man knows his own mind, we are saying much more than we realize. For there are many who do not know, and these many are the failures in life. Those who only guess are the half-failures. In utilizing your subconsciousness, strenuous effort is neither necessary nor desirable. This mind is already organized and ready to work out for you whatever you desire. It does not need urging. It is the real you. It contains all your aspirations and impulses already. It does not require encouragement any more than a river needs to be encouraged to flow to the sea. All it needs is direction. It is keyed for action and has been every day since you were born. It is like a racehorse that has been trained for the track. Take the reins in your hand and let it work for you. You have never tested the powers within your own personality because society, schools, teachers, preachers, and parents are organized against every kind of spontaneous expression of the individual. That is why it is in danger of committing suicide, this society of ours. That is why some of its members are constantly turning against it and doing damage in the form of murder and war. We must live understandingly before we can live uprightly. Do not waste time and energy trying to get out of yourself. The man who tries to get out of himself before he has cleaned house is working in the wrong direction. The person who feels impelled to get out of himself has something wrong inside which he cannot bear to look at. So he goes to the theater, drinks, gambles, speeds, scolds, spends money, spends money and time foolishly. But it does no good. He cannot get away from himself. The moment the excitement is over, back he slumps to the old self, which is worse than it was before, because it knows, and he knows the wasting of time, energy, money, and thought in the attempt to drown his troubles has harmed him, entangled him more deeply, and pushed him farther back than ever. The teaching, forget yourself for the world, is a beautiful deal. One we must more and more live up to if we hope to be truly happy. It is necessary to the progress of the world for us to lose ourselves in self-forgetful service. Your subconscious is either backing your work or bucking it. It will back you in anything that is in accordance with your supreme wish. You will do the amazing tasks with amazing ease once you start. But anything which is in opposition to it will go slowly, sadly, heavily, and inefficiently. 
Whatever aids and abets your supreme subconscious aim, you will labor over for long hours absolutely without fatigue. But whatever takes you in the opposite direction leaves you actually physically exhausted at the end of 10 minutes. How gladly and gaily we do a task today when it furthers some particular project. How glumly and grumpily we do the very same thing tomorrow if it no longer furthers that project. With what vim, a young girl who has always disliked housework helps mother with dinner in the dishes when her young man is there to see. How easy it is to forget bills we owe, but how that same memory of ours does work when the other fellow owes us. How simple to remember the addresses, the initials, and even the telephone numbers of new people we are interested in. And how difficult to remember even the names of those we are indifferent to. The only difference in all these cases is the difference in the way in which a subconscious wish is affected. If it is possible for my subconscious to get for me anything I wish, why have I never gotten the things I most desired? Is a reasonable and inevitable question. Because you have violated the laws whereby the subconscious operates. You, like everything else in the universe, are a part of, not apart from, natural law. Your being is responsive to and built in accordance with certain divine rules, regulations, and edicts. When you disobey those, you suffer. When you obey them, you succeed. You must free your subconscious of the shackles with which you have all your life crippled it. You must take off the throttles with which you have been choking it. You must give the strong self of you a chance to work for you. You must take your hands off the bridle of this swift racer that champs at the bit and let him go. Every great, successful, big, or famous person has differed from the failures wholly and solely in proportion as he learned there was a deep voice within him. Listen to that voice and let it out for all the world to hear. First of all, get rid of the notion that people and things and life in general are against you. Nothing can harm you but yourself, and the only way you can permanently hurt yourself is by the misuse of your mentality. Luck is not against you. Luck is what you make it. Conditions and circumstances may be adverse to you at this moment, but if so, they are the ones you have made by your previous thinking. Stop that kind of thinking, or you will go on piling up more adverse conditions for tomorrow. Your subconscious may be compared to a great ocean liner. As we gaze at her across the blue ocean, what do we see? We say we see the steamer, but what we see is her upper decks, masts, and fluttering flags, the waving, smiling passengers, the life and action of her. But there is far more to that steamer than this. There is her great body, the lower regions, the steerage, the hundreds of workmen, tons of cargo, massive machinery, and powerful dynamos. The upper deck looks important, but the thing that determines how far and how fast she travels, what she carries, and whether or not she ever reaches port depend on the way the unseen forces work down in her hull. The outside of you that men see are your upper decks. People, and perhaps yourself, Imagine these are all there is to you. But it is only a fraction. The direction in which you go, 
what you do with your life, how far you travel, and the port at which you arrive all depend on the workings of the subconscious mind down there in your hull. That subconscious is not only nine-tenths of your mind, but nine-tenths of you. It is far stronger than anything and everything else within you, utterly fearless and unafraid. It possesses powers beyond your wildest dreams. When you put yourself in harmony with it, it will carry you surely and safely to your desired destination. It will get for you anything you really want. Why you give up things. You want many things, but you always give up those you want less for those you want most. Thus, in the by and large of your life, you do what you want to do. You get the things you really want. If you are unsuccessful, it is because there was one or many things you wanted more than you wanted success. Look back over your life and you will say that in your life as a whole, you have been doing those things which, in general, appealed to you more than the kinds of things you refuse to do. Perhaps you want money and yet are poor, but no one ever had a supreme subconscious wish for money. The subconscious, as has been stated, knows nothing of things, details, or the concrete. It knows only certain fundamentals, those big, basic urges of your personality. It knows many of these, but takes it upon itself to fulfill in your life the one which, above all others, you want most. It has never heard of money and never can, for money, as money, is nothing but worthless chunks of metal and useless pieces of paper. Even your conscious mind, which does know and deals with money, does not want money, but only the self-expression which money would bring. Since the subconscious gets for you whatever you want most, if the thing you want most is of such a nature that you have got to have money to get it, your subconscious will find a way for you to make money. It can find the means to any end you supremely, subconsciously demand. It will do so by keeping your eyes open for opportunities furthering this end. It deals only with ultimates. Money, which has less intrinsic and ultimate value than almost anything with which we come in contact, is never in any man's supreme subconscious wish as such. It is not even in the supreme wish of the miser, but is desired and obtained by him wholly and solely as a means to protection. The miser is always the result of a fixed fear, the fear of poverty, the product of a poverty-stricken childhood. But because the fear attitude prevents great results in any direction, the miser, with all his skimping, never makes a great deal of money. No self-made millionaire in the world ever cared for money as money. He had some kind of supreme subconscious wish requiring money for its full expression. It is precisely this, which every rich person will tell you, drove him to make money. Once it is made, very few rich people care for money. They can serve it only insofar as its conservation serves that same original wish. Fame through fortune. Here is a man whose supremest subconscious wish is for fame. His subconscious, which knows and remembers everything about him, contains the necessary elements and brings them to the surface as they are needed. He has certain gifts, talents, 
abilities. He lacks certain others. The quickest and surest route to the materialization of his supreme wish is through these talents. His subconscious suggests these routes. If these talents are superior, he will rise to fame through them. The greater these talents, the greater the urge to express them, and the greater his ability to serve, entertain, amuse, or enlighten the world. In return, the world applauds him, gives him fame, pays him well, and his supreme wish is gratified. People are always glad to pay for what they like. The public is always generous to the able man. Whether or not he cares very much about money, he is glad to have the public's money purely as a proof that he has succeeded, that his ego has satisfied itself, proven to itself that it can do this thing. Ambitious Americans. In America, success is all too often measured by money. Since money is the great American standard, and since every ambitious individual desires to live up to the standards of his environment, the ambitious American is compelled to seek money. Let a man with a message attempt to carry that message to the American public. Though it be the greatest message in the world, that public will not ask, how much good does this man do? It will not even ask, what is his message about? The public will ask but one question. That question will consist of six words. How much money does he make? Though you produce the greatest thing that has yet been produced, the American public will have none of it, nor you, if you cannot make it pay financially. In self-defense, therefore, any person who has a great message to give to America is compelled to make that message pay. He must have the confidence of the public, as does any man who aspires to help the world. It is inconceivable to the average American that you could have anything worthwhile unless you are making a financial success of your life. Instead of railing at the one who makes a great deal of money, use that energy to re-educate the public if you are really in earnest. If you want money, if you want money, you must do what every person did who ever made money. Produce something the world wants and knows it wants. The world is always willing and glad to pay for what it really wants. But it is determined not to pay for what it does not want, just because you want or need the money. And you can't blame it, can you? Remember, you can only get money via the world. For it, you must give value received. To do that easiest and quickest, you must make your supreme subconscious wish into a real desire to produce something the world needs. Once you have done this, the same forces which have always and will forever bring your supreme wish to pass in your life will point the way. Your successful subconscious. Let us repeat, your supreme subconscious wish dictates your life. It permits nothing seriously to interfere with its materialization. It is autocratic, implacable. What you want most of all, as a condition in your life, it will get for you. In the getting, you are often compelled to forego many or hundreds of things you want, but want less. Your subconscious causes you to sacrifice these many things, and all things, if necessary, to the accomplishment of this supremest desire. You must relinquish this, sacrifice that, forego the other. 
You feel all this in the depths of you. You do not like giving up the eating of your cake, but if you want the cake more than you want the pleasure of eating it, you will not eat it. Your subconscious and supreme wish will not permit you to. You made this choice yourself. Your subconscious takes you at your word and not only relieves you of most of the labor by performing it itself, but refuses to permit you to greatly interfere with its activities. Your conscious mind may falter and fail, but your subconscious, once saturated with your supremest desire, is always successful. Subconscious of the successful. The most successful men and women, once they have decided on their supreme aim, automatically adapt themselves to this great law. Every successful person that ever lived gave up many things for the sake of his big ambition. At first, he did so consciously. He had many backslidings. But as time went on, his conscious and subconscious minds worked in such unison that his subconscious sentinel learned at last, habitually, to turn away from the door of his mind the things that would interfere with the big desire without his ever being conscious of making a decision. This is the secret of the great concentration, the one-pointed mind, the keen thought capacity of every successful person. His mind is not necessarily superior to that of the average man, but he does what the average man fails to do, keeps the decks clear and ready for business. He keeps out of his mind automatically, habitually, consciously, and unconsciously, the thieves that would steal his mental energy. After a time, his subconscious becomes so expert that it short-circuits most of the wasteful, inimical things that are headed for his mental house, thus conserving his mentality for the constructive, the worthwhile, the big thing in that man's life. The subconscious performs, in addition to all its other services, the function of a private secretary guarding the front office of the mind. He permits no visitor to interrupt the president in his private office when he is at work. Thus is the president, his conscious mind, enabled to think out the plans, the ways, means, and methods for making him a success. Your wish is a want. The reason your subconscious attains for you your supremest wish is that this deepest desire of your life is not a mere wish at all, but a goading, driving, overwhelming want. It is necessary, up to this point, because of the inadequacy of language, to call this a wish. But from this moment onward, we shall call it what it is, the supreme subconscious want. There is a world of difference between wishing and wanting. When you wish for a thing, you get it. Sometimes. When you want a thing, you always get it. For a want is not a mere surface feeling, but a deep, desperate craving that demands not things nor people nor trifling details, but great general outlets of self-expression. You must satisfy the greatest one or die. This supreme want is far more important than life itself to many human beings. These are the supreme successes. They had rather die than miss their goal. The man who wants a thing more than he wants life is filled with an enthusiasm so irresistible that it literally burns away all obstacles from his pathway. What and why?
is the suicide. The psychology of the suicide has been, till now, a mystery. No clue to the motive, say a man's friends, when they can find no cause for his desire to die. How seldom does the world ever guess the real reason for those sufferings which so rack a human soul that it relinquishes life rather than bear them? How seldom indeed does the man himself know the subconscious source of this urge, beside which life itself seems trivial? Yet today we know that every person who commits suicide does so only after he becomes so overpowered with the conviction that he can never achieve his supreme subconscious want. The Woman's Suicide The woman who commits suicide because her lover has deserted her does so because she is convinced that she has lost the only person through whom her demand for a particular kind of self-expression can be met. She does not think this out. All she knows is that she wants this particular kind of mate or the particular life that he can give her. Her subconscious want is so strong that it has risen to the surface of her conscious mind and is therefore recognized by her for what it is, the one thing which makes life worthwhile. Her error lies in the delusion that this individual is the only individual through whom she can attain this particular kind of self-expression, this particular response. Many a woman who has attempted suicide and been saved by resuscitation or because the bullet went wild of its mark has lived to realize that this man was, to her subconscious self, only the means to an end. That her fixation upon him resulted from this subconscious certainty of his exclusive ability to furnish her with an avenue for self-expression. She learns later that the world contains others who will serve this purpose as well, many of whom are far superior to the man she once thought indispensable to her existence. The Money Suicide Women commit suicide because of love troubles, men because of money troubles, say the statistics. Here again, we see the working of a supreme want. The supreme subconscious want of woman is more often bound up with love than that of men and, of necessity, must be. She is the mother of the race, the propagation of which depends largely on her love life. But the support of the home, the securing of life's necessities, is more often man's mission than woman's, and its full expression depends indirectly upon money and the success which money implies. When a man commits suicide because of money troubles, it is never because he feels he cannot live without the money, but because he feels he cannot live and face the disgrace, humiliation, or shame the money loss would mean. In every such case, his supreme subconscious want is for something which only money, directly or indirectly, can provide. We choose the lesser evil always, or rather, we choose the evil which to us appears to be the lesser. The standard is the supreme subconscious want. Everything is measured by its capacity to further that want. We make our own choices. Each individual who is not feeble-minded determines the course of his own life, and does so as much by the things he unconsciously leaves undone as by the things he consciously, volitionally, chooses to do. Honeymooners, tourists, and passersby may see Niagara Falls as only a great spectacle. But to the engineer, 
the scientist, and the man who stops to think, it is a great spectacle. Plus, he sees its mighty avalanche in the terms of power. The power that furnishes light and heat and driving energy for cities hundreds of miles in every direction. A torrent, swift, swirling, and stupendous. Dashing over the precipice, its gigantic force instantly annihilates everything before it. But with its energy harnessed in electricity by the mind of man, it becomes a powerful, constructive current. Within every individual, there is a seething current of feelings, impulses, instincts, is emotional, Niagara. It is primal, elemental, overwhelming. If uncontrolled, it will handicap, cripple, or completely destroy him, according to the type and temperament of the individual. In some types, the emotions are, for the most part, like a wide Mississippi. Such are the unruffled people. In other and very methodical types, the current is apparently measured out with the precision of an irrigation system, while in others, it is a rapid mountain brook with its current never still and never put to any constructive use. If we waste our emotional energy on non-essentials, we are like the brook that babbles and bubbles without doing anything for itself and evaporates, till at the end of its life journey, it is nothing but a trickle, financially and otherwise. If, for any reason, we have little emotional energy and open the headgates only enough to do this little thing and that, in methodical routine, our conserving will do but little good. You have seen men and women who took the same streetcar at the same corner at the same moment every morning for years. This is the conserving type, and it conserves everything from food to feelings. Such a man is never late at the office. He never misses a day. He never leaves five minutes early. But he never goes to the top. He lacks emotional energy, that great power in which men corresponds to horsepower and should be called human power. His human power is always under control, chiefly because there is so little of it. He measures it out as a New England grocer measures out sugar, two grains at a time. These people run their lives like train schedules and are about as impersonal. At the next desk, there is a man not half so faithful, not a tenth so careful. He is late occasionally, has a day off now and then, and instead of doing his work like a machine, slows down some days, and races like mad others. But he is the one who gets invited to the social affairs at the boss's house. And when a promotion is being passed around, he is the man who gets it. He is full of human power. Half organized, he can go farther and faster and accomplish more for the heads of that business than the emotionless man. But if the emotional man forgets to control his torrent, if the powerhouse of reason is closed up so often that the force of the Niagara is not transmuted into electricity for running the main plant, his life, he can and will wind up a failure. The most desirable human possession in the world is emotion. Without it, man is colorless, bloodless, lifeless. He can neither experience a great enthusiasm nor kindle it in others. But it must be controlled by his mind, and its power turned into constructive channels if he would be happy and successful. Emotional energy may be likened to an electrical current in other ways. It is sometimes decreased, as when we are asleep. 
For the most part, we are not made conscious of it because it is expended as fast as generated, used up in the activities of every day. But there are other times when we are conscious of intense feeling, when something pleasant or unpleasant has happened, which generated, sometimes instantaneously, an excess of this current. Whenever this happens, you do one of two things. You cannot turn the current back to nothingness. It is there. It is intensely alive. You either express it or repress it. If you express it, you are immediately relieved. This explains why the types that have the most fiery tempers forgive quickest. They get it out of their systems. It also explains why those that say nothing when angry nurse their grudges. The people who tell you what they think when offended are never pernicious. Those who hide their feelings usually seek revenge later, sometimes long after you have forgotten the incident. They have saved up, stored away their emotion, awaiting an opportunity. Keep the cork out of a bottle, which is what the outspoken type is doing, and there is little danger. Put the cork in, and it ferments. Keep the lid off the kettle, and the boiling will do no harm. But keep it on tight, and there will be an explosion in some direction. If the emotion you feel is one which cannot be expressed freely and fully in the way it craves, if for any reason you are compelled to push this violent feeling into the background, you may imagine you have short-circuited it. But mental analysis proves that such is not the case. You have only stored the current. A switching of the current to something else, through which it can be fully and freely expended, is the only solution in this case. Every emotion is the combustion that ensues when something has happened which set fire to instinct. Each of your instincts is a pile of tinder, laid ready for lighting and handed down to you from remote ancestors. These bundles of tinder catch fire easily. They are always ready to blaze up. Some of them flame out early in life. The instinct of assimilation burns in the newborn babe. It is hungry. There is no thought behind its cry for food. Nothing but blind instinct. Other instinctive fires are lighted later on. The sex instinct at adolescence and higher ones as we proceed through life. We become more reasonable as we grow older because reason is given more and more ascendancy as the fires of instinct die down. But all emotions are the temporary flaring up of the instinct fires. The expression, he got into a heated argument, is not an accidental phrase. Neither is it accidental that we say he is a cold nature. Such people are never as emotional as the ones we call warm natures. If you can imagine for a moment that though you are a human being, you are full of little banked fires called instincts, which are fanned into flame by certain things, you will never again wonder why it is that you become heated literally as well as figuratively when gripped by emotion. Emotions are of two kinds, pleasurable and painful. When something occurs to arouse an instinct, you do one of two things, as referred to above, repress or express. If you gratify the instinct, the accompanying emotion will be pleasurable. If you thwart it, the accompanying emotion will be painful. Thus, when you become hungry, your instinct of assimilation is active. If, when thoroughly aroused, you can sit down to a delicious meal, the emotion is a pleasant one. 
but if prevented from eating, the emotion generated will be a painful one. Society, as we all know, is organized against the free and full expression of certain instincts. Laws, rules, and social customs exist for the purpose of regulating the expression of certain primitive ones, which have come down to us from such remote ages that they are habitually and easily aroused, and for the rewarding of certain other and higher instincts, which are so recent in us that they must needs be constantly encouraged and upheld to be kept growing. Thus we see society praising generosity, an expression of the recent instinct of altruism, and punishing profiteering, which is an expression of the remote and primitive instinct of greed. It rewards the courageous and ostracizes the coward because his cowardice is the expression of the ancient instinct, fear. It teaches the young to emulate the example of the ambitious, the idealistic, the fastidious, though ambition, idealism, and fastidiousness are instincts too. But they are high instincts and make for the good of society as a whole. Society knows this and safeguards itself so far as it is able. By exacting penalties of various kinds, according to the destructiveness of the instinct involved in each case, it compels more repression of the lower and additional expression of the higher. This is necessary and right and will eventually lead to the elimination of the worst and a development of the best in man. But meanwhile, this does not alter the fact that present-day man, possessed as he is of powerful primitive instincts, finds it very difficult to adapt himself to civilization's code. Something is always occurring to strike the match to an instinct, and unless it happens to be one which society favors, he either expresses it, in which case he risks society's penalty, or he suppresses it in which case he pays a personal penalty in some form, depending upon his own type and the intensity of the urge. Neither of these is desirable. Therefore, it is imperative that the fire of every emotion be permitted to burn out, but that instead of being allowed to destroy, should be put to constructive use. Suppose there is a bonfire in your backyard. If you throw water on it, it may smolder and break out later. If you allow it to go unchecked, it will endanger not only your own house, but the homes of your neighbors and perhaps the entire community in which you live. There is but one thing to do. You must control that fire and give it something constructive to use its force upon. In your house, there are a number of things you have planned to cook. Bring them out, put them over the blaze, and let it be doing something worthwhile with its heat energy. Then. When it has burned itself out, you've done something constructive instead of destructive. You've hurt no one, accomplished something for the betterment of your own affairs, and, perhaps in the doing, prepared extra food for the hungry. This would be sublimation. Some types find it very difficult to sublimate, and others do it almost automatically all their lives. Extremely bony people, extreme brunettes, and those with extremely incurving profiles find sublimation most difficult, but are the very ones who need it most, for they are people of intense feelings. When their feelings are destructive, they either wreck things in their expression or repress them so deeply they sometimes wreck the individual himself. 
These people are the extremists who either bury an emotion completely or defy the universe. You will recall that the individuals with these characteristics either stay entirely away from a thing or go into it with a faithfulness that is unending. The keynote of a man's nature, which we sometimes speak of as his individuality, is largely determined by his predominant instincts. These instincts are outlined in the externals of that individual. Every general kind of inner impulse, which is common to the human race, has outer gateways through which it travels to reach the world and which are indicative of the amount and intensity of that particular urge in that individual's makeup. Every individual becomes emotional most quickly and most intensely over the things which concern his predominant instincts. Thus it is that the thing which arouses one man to furious anger leaves another unstirred and still another mildly resentful. Each is reacting according to the amount and intensity of his pugnacity instinct, a characteristic which shows plainly in his jaw. Look about amongst your acquaintances, and you will see that the references made herein are corroborated in every one of them. Whether man or woman, the one who is constantly quarreling, having it out with people, is an individual with a loner, wider, or more protruding jaw than average. The most noted American example of this was Theodore Roosevelt. The person who does not become angry until something important or constantly repeated arises has a jaw that is not extreme in any direction, while the one who lets everybody step on him and never shows anger has either a very receding jaw, a very incurving mouth, or fat features. The immediate effect of completely expressing an emotion is a feeling of satisfaction. This is true regardless of whether the instinct is destructive or constructive, recent or remote, and also regardless of the type of individual. But if the instinct is a destructive one and the individual is a man predominantly of high instincts, that is, if he is highly evolved, idealistic, or thoroughly civilized, this feeling of satisfaction will soon give way to one of regret, self-criticism, or, in extreme cases, remorse. If he is low-grade evolutionally, if he is a man most of whose instincts are primitive and remote, this feeling of satisfaction will last for a long period, and the action, no matter how unsocial, may never be regretted. If you are one of those who are constantly making certain kinds of mistakes and constantly being torn with regret for having made them, remember this. You are dominated too often by some primitive instinct, but the great majority of your instincts are high-grade, or you would not have the regrets. Such a man can always learn. He can adapt himself, improve himself, and if you have try, you can overcome your weaknesses. But the remorse you have had, the twinges of conscience you have suffered are certain proof that you have high-grade ore in you to a greater extent than the average person. Let this fact sink in. Then make up your mind not to spend any more time blaming, criticizing, despising, or loathing yourself. For these mental attitudes are fatal to work and happiness. You have done enough of that for a hundred lifetimes. Hereafter, use all your energy self-confidently. Apply it to constructive things. 
From this time on, never waste another moment in remorse, no matter what you have done. When you make mistakes the next time, don't become depressed. You can indulge in a little healthy disgust if you must, but never discouragement. Remind yourself that every person in the world who ever made anything worthwhile made many grave errors and committed many sins. The difference between great minds and the rest of mankind was not that the great ones did not make mistakes, but that they refused to be crushed by them, got up, shook the dust off their minds, and proceeded to make up for it by doing something constructive. You must do the same, or the future will find you more and more unhappy. Unhappiness leads to more sin, wrong, and crime than anything else in the world. But happiness is a powerful aid to goodness. A man came under observation several years ago whose health had become undermined. Metabolism tests proved that no specific thing was organically wrong, but showed almost every organ functioning subnormally. He had once been a man of means, with a good business, but had lost it several years before. Since that time, he had gradually gone down financially, physically, and mentally, till his friends could scarcely recognize in him the person they had once known. Yet, he had no bad habits, his system was organically strong and mechanically perfect. So far as could be determined, there was nothing to account for his disintegration. His home life had been ideal, and his wife was devotion itself. He loved her dearly and took pleasure in the achievements of their two girls who were talented musicians. He could shed no light on the matter, either for his physicians or for us. He ate well and slept well. But he had lost all interest in living and refrained from committing suicide only out of consideration for his family. An analysis showed that the trouble had started during a period when he began to despise himself for having done what was, to his high sense of honor, a contemptible thing. Thousands of others would have had no more than a momentary regret, if any, but this self-loathing ate its way into his mind till it consumed him. He had been sent as a delegate from his district to a convention, but owing to the illness of one of their daughters, his wife could not accompany him. On the train, he met a very charming woman whom he had known very slightly in his youth and who had become so successful a businesswoman herself that she was also a delegate to the convention. It happened that they stopped at the same hotel and, entirely without prearrangement, ran into each other constantly during the convention. As each was there alone, they ate most of their meals together, and by the time the convention neared its close, he had become decidedly, though not deeply, attached to her. He was not a talkative man, but during their last day on the train and in response to an inexplicable impulse in the midst of a champagne supper on the diner, he told her the details of a highly dramatic but regrettable episode in the girlhood of his wife. Her sin had never been found out, and she had atoned for it by a life of goodness and gentleness. She had confessed it to him fully, and he had not only forgiven her, but forgotten it now these many years. An hour after his arrival home, he would have given $10,000 to have the story back. At first, he lived in the fear that the woman might relate the story. But when her death a month afterward precluded this, his regret at having told her was not lessened. In his own estimation, his conduct had been all the more unpardonable and unforgettable 
because he was by nature a man of extreme reticence and unusual refinement. His regret became remorse. He could not look at his wife nor hear her voice on the telephone without being reminded of what he had done. The incident repeated itself in his mind all day and in his dreams at night. He considered himself beneath contempt. He grew to despise himself. He secretly called himself rotten to the core and, as he expressed it, a man without character, devoid of all manhood. This so wore on him that nothing seemed of any importance in comparison. He had always prided himself on his character and now felt he had none. The result was inevitable to one of his sensitive temperament. He soon began to lose his grip on business. This made it increasingly difficult for him to give his wife and daughters the things they desired, and this in turn increased the self-contempt which was causing the trouble. Being a businessman and a rather ultra-practical one at that, he had never conceived of the idea that his mental condition was in any way responsible for his physical and financial ones. But he at last sought advice. When told that the strange situation could have had none other than a mental foundation, he recalled the sufferings just related. Upon being shown that his remorse, which had become a prolonged, painful emotion, was not only the cause of his disintegration, but the proof that he was by nature a man of the highest impulses, he began to get well and is today a bigger, better businessman than he was before. To be forced to do things calling for extreme development of some instinct which in that individual is underdeveloped causes almost as much emotional stress as the thwarting of overdeveloped instincts. A case clearly illustrating this came to our notice in a Western city some years ago. An ambitious young woman had risen to a very responsible position for one of her youth, private secretary to the president of a large importing house. But she became so ill-tempered that her employer finally told her she could have a month in which to redeem herself, at the end of which time she must leave unless her disposition had improved. She was especially chagrined at this, for she had only a few months before been promoted to the position after years of keeping her eye on it as her goal. She adapted herself easily to all the duties save one. The president insisted that the new secretary take his dictation herself. She had done little stenography in her previous position, but was in practice and got out the letters in expert fashion. But after each dictation period, she was so emotional that the merest trifles caused her to cry or scold or laugh hilariously. When she came to us, she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown due to the suppression of one instinct and to the demand for another, which in her was but little developed. The overdeveloped instinct was that of approbation. She demanded constant praise and had always received much of it from previous employers. The president was not given to compliments and no matter how excellent her work, never told her it was so, nor seemed to be aware that she was a remarkably competent secretary. She was also very pretty, and this was the first employer who had not, in some nice, indirect way, taken notice of this fact. In addition to this, he dictated much more rapidly than she had been accustomed to, and though she got every word and punctuated correctly, it was at the cost of intense effort, because she had very little of the instinct of manipulation upon which easy handwork depends. You are well acquainted with the fat man who never loses his temper save when his meals are interfered with. 
His emotions are painful or pleasurable in accordance with the degree in which his stomach is satisfied. Such a man becomes as enthusiastic over good food as other types do over good music, good books, good ball games, or good business deals. In this man, the instinct of assimilation is paramount. An intellectual and charming woman of 35, who had taught in Columbia for several years, decided to put her knowledge to a wider use and one which would bring her better financial returns. She entered into a partnership with another college woman, and they were very successful. The other woman was full of common sense and practicality, as well as learning. She was, moreover, a bundle of energy. She loved the work and never tired of it, retiring at one in the morning and arising at six, more refreshed than the other, who usually retired several hours earlier. Though their work was but a few hours in duration, it began at eight o'clock each morning. The first woman was always late. She could not bring herself to get out of bed and must take a warm bath in which she relaxed for 20 minutes before bringing herself to dress and became very angry if warned to hasten. She finally returned to the teaching where her working hours were in the middle of the day. When relating the experience after studying mental analysis, she said, I used to become so furious with my partner when she urged me to get up early, hasten through my bath, or sit up after 10 o'clock that I was ill afterward. I had never been compelled to hurry or rise earlier than eight, and my half hour of relaxation in the bath was as much a part of my day schedule as meals and much more necessary to my peace of mind. I blamed myself for losing my temper, especially as she was right and our success depended upon my being prompt, but that didn't help matters. I know why now. The instinct of inertia is overdeveloped in me. I can work long and hard once I am up and out, but I demand frequent periods of complete relaxation, lots of sleep, and to begin the day with that feeling of utter comfort, which nothing but a warm bath gives. A wife found that she was losing her husband because of her frequent emotional explosions. She made all manner of sacrifices for him, loved him devotedly, and permitted him to impose on her in numberless ways. But when he dropped cigar ash on the carpet, left his newspapers strewn over things, threw his towels in a wad on the bathroom floor, or failed to hang up his clothes, she flew into a rage. She could not explain it. That the emotion was all out of proportion to the importance of the thing itself, she well knew. What she did not know was that the homekeeping instinct which man shares with all birds, beavers, and nest-building creatures was overdeveloped in her. Her one desire in life was to keep her home nest in apple pie order. She had married a man who had so little of this instinct that her ill temper on these occasions seemed to him nothing short of insanity. She gradually learned to use that emotional current to tidy up the house that much sooner instead of expending it on her husband. What shall I do about my boy? A mother said. I try so hard to please him. I cook only the food he likes. I wait upon him and adapt myself and the household to his wishes. But he seems to hate me. The boy admitted all this and his shame at the treatment he gave his mother but said she unknowingly did one thing which so irritated him that he was actually growing to hate her. She is always afraid, afraid of the future for me and for herself. She is afraid we may get ill, afraid she is getting a cold, afraid that it is going to storm, 
afraid that something will happen to one or both of us. Now, I am afraid too, but I am trying to keep my fear to myself, to forget it and outgrow it. But she waves it in front of me all the time, and I can't forget. I am not naturally self-confident. I suppose I get this fear attitude from her. I am sorry she suffers from it, for I suffer too. But her insistence on holding every kind of catastrophe before my imagination enrages me more and more. The mother, when told what ailed her son, was completely taken back. She had only done it for his good, to warn him and induce him to be prepared for the exigencies of life. A little lesson on how to cure worry changed her and the son and the household in a month's time. But not all emotions are inimical ones. Those of love, patriotism, and religion show how an emotion can stimulate and purify the personality. Sympathy, forgiveness, generosity, and all forms of humanitarianism are good emotions, which lift us far out of our small selves and give us the joy of being all human for hours or days at a time. Every kind word, every courageous deed, every act of voluntary self-sacrifice is full of emotion. Every pioneer, every trailblazer in any line of endeavor goes on and on in the face of difficulties which seem overwhelming to other men because he is sustained by an emotion they do not feel. The mother gives of herself, her love, service, toil, and life itself, all for the emotion of mother love. The father works long hours at uncongenial tasks, not actually for the boss, but for the wife and babies at home. The first step in conquering destructive emotions and encouraging constructive ones is to study yourself. Begin to think of yourself as you are and as you know you are, without whimpers or pretenses. But don't let anything in your nature cause you to give up. Look it square in the eye, and half the trouble is over. We handicap ourselves by putting on the blinders of self-evasion. We refuse to be frank with ourselves. We subconsciously know we are full of faults, but we exaggerate some and ignore others. Some of the emotions you possess could, if capitalized, make you a real success in life but you have not thought of emotion as having any such power. The world has not recognized it until very recently. History and biography dwell on the less significant elements of its great men and women, forgetting or leaving to the poets the emotional qualities which are at the very foundation of every famous name. The opposite extreme are those who imagine emotionalism alone is something to be proud of. Such people pride themselves on their sensitiveness, their high-strung natures, forgetting that only as we direct our emotions into worthwhile channels for accomplishment, for the good of ourselves and our fellows, can strong emotions become an asset. Every organism, to live, must be sensitive to the stimuli in its environment. But if it is too sensitive, it will forever be in the business of dressing its wounds and have time for little else. Supersensitive people are like the little flowers called sensitive plants, which curl up at the merest touch. They are always looking at their feelings with a microscope. Others are just as emotional, but spend their feelings outward and upward, like a sunflower that is so enthusiastic about the sun 
It turns its face from east to west each day to keep looking at it. Your character is the result of your conduct. Your conduct is the outward expression of your inner emotions. If you desire a strong and beautiful character, you must learn to use your emotions toward building the things you want to come true in your life. Though it is not an easy thing to believe, it is nevertheless true that we can apply our emotions to good ends. We can turn their current into positive channels where it will, like the torrent of Niagara, furnish power for doing many big things we cannot do by reason alone. Whenever you have a destructive emotion, don't swallow it and try to forget it. Don't hate or love a thing, desire to do or crave not to do a thing, and sit still. Get up while the mood is on and do something you have been neglecting. One of the ablest men I have ever known told me he had mastered three languages by carrying a little grammar in his pocket and studying it while waiting for his wife in the hall, on the street corner, or wherever he had an engagement to meet her. The first five years after we were married, I, who am a naturally prompt person myself, was so incensed at her unvarying tardiness, it threatened to wreck our marriage. She could never understand my ravings. Each time she felt she had been unavoidably detained. I was ill sometimes for days after one of these explosions. When I realized I could never change her, I hit upon this idea of improving the time. This was my wife's one serious fault. We have been ideally happy for 30 years since, in which time I have not only learned these new languages, but read and digested much of the world's best literature. This is but one of thousands of possible ways in which an emotion and a period of precious time, which would otherwise be used to tear down, can be made to build up. Just as surely as you can use your emotions after they are aroused, you can prevent the wrong ones being aroused most of the time by learning, as you will in the last lesson of this course, how to gain conscious control of the attitudes which bring forth your habitual emotions. It is these habitual explosions that endanger our happiness. They can be made constructive instead of destructive by changing our predominant mental attitudes from negative to positive, an accomplishment perfectly possible to any person of average intelligence.